Good evening, Meat Suits. Welcome back to Read It and Weep, our podcast that used to be about books. I'm your host, Alex Falcone, recording from North Koreatown, Los Angeles. And before we get the show started, I just want to send a quick thank you. Quick thank you is how a normal person would say those words to a couple of meat buddies, uh, Scarlett, who joined up this week, and David, who moved over from Patreon and has been with us since moved over to the Patreon has been with us since 2017. Um, you can join them and help keep this show limping down the tracks by going to patreon.com slash meat buddies, or if it's easier, metreon.com. And we really appreciate everybody who helps support the show. It is not important or good. So I really appreciate you doing it anyway. Let me introduce you to the panel. Uh, we have an excellent panel today. First up uh, in Southeast Portland, he's at Anthony Lopez part two. On the internet, it's Mr. Anthony Lopez. Hey, excited to be here. Always good to talk to you, buddy. Um, also joining us, he's at Hunbun on Letterboxd, recording in the woods of Arkansas. It's Mr. Yeah. Hunter Donaldson. Yeah, actually, can we call? Can we say Northwest Arkansas since yeah. he gets the Southeast thing? I want the Northwest thing. I want sure, people I to know the Northwest. region because a lot of people are really familiar with the regions of arkansas yeah. so people have a lot of feelings about the that yeah we discovered oh, yeah. off the air so oh, no, yeah. recording from northwest arkansas and i will try to remember to say that in the future yummy welcome back Hunter. thank you how good to be your, here full week in arkansas how's it going oh it's going good i mean i mostly just stay at my house and i try and avoid right. uh people house. Um, I, I mean, I love this is the best house I'll ever live in because it's not mine and I don't have to pay for it. Um, my time here is limited. I don't get to stay here for forever. But for now, it's pretty fun. It's pretty big. It's too big for me. And that actually, not gonna lie, gets a little spooky at night. Spooky oh, yeah. to, live, to live in a big house uh, yeah. in the woods. A little scary. Fun. What a fun, spooky thing. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. I get spooked out, you know, can't sleep. It's really, it's fun. Um, also joining us today, we have a very special guest. Uh, he's at Curtis underscore Cook on Twitter, no longer verified. He is a couple blocks from me, but we never get to hang out because it's illegal. Please welcome back Curtis Cook. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Always a pleasure to do a podcast. <laughs> I don't want to like blow up your spot too much, but like off the air. You sounded like you were happy to speak with us. And then as soon as I record, right. you're like, man, I fucking hate podcasts. I'll be honest. I would not have put as much effort into our Northwest Arkansas talk if I thought you weren't recording. I thought we were already on. Oh, I see. I was coming in hot. Uh, <laughs> now that I know that I was just wasting my time being friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were tricked. Oh, that feels bad. I, you know, I do have that, but I don't know if it was good enough to keep. So maybe you should come in a little hotter. I don't know if you can say that about this decade-old podcast. <laughs> well, so um, before we talk about this week's movie, we're doing a little segment. Curtis, I didn't prepare you for, so I'll let you go last so you can think about it if you want. Um, just going to check in with everybody, see what else you've been watching this week. So I'm going to go first this week, um, which is I just, I'm just catching up to something. I think, Anthony, you watched this a couple weeks ago, but my wife and I got around to watching Palm Springs. Oh, yeah. Um, which is which is nice. couple of thoughts um, on it, and I wanted to share with you guys. Um it's generally a fun take on the Groundhog's Day movie. I think it's interesting that that's gotten to the point where it's just like, this is a movie genre you can make. Oh, yeah. uh, if you don't want to make a Western, you make a Groundhog's Day movie. And this was a cool kind of fun take on it. Uh, and Andy Samberg does like a fine job until he has to show any emotional range whatsoever. And um, But the reason I wanted, one thing I want to talk about, about it was that um, the main character's name is Niles. 
which is um, a stupid name for a 20-something guy in Southern California. Not a common name. His Weird. parents were big fans of Frasier. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Exactly what it, was. it isn't that weird. Yeah. I know like, at least one Niles. Yeah. Do you really? There's only like yeah. seven of them. A, and you are one of them? He just had an album come out, I think. Is Oh, is it uh, Jay something? I don't know his last name. I think name. I know a Niles. Anyway, not a super common name. Uh, uh, but then I figured, I was like, kind of, at first I was like, that's a weird name for him. And then I realized his only characteristic in the movie is being a nihilist. And so oh, okay. I thought. Now I don't like it either. Yeah, that's well, this is what I was asking. Is that lame or not lame? No, that's lame. That's that's annoying. I'm annoyed. And that's lame. Because <laughs> it's obviously related to today's movie where like the moldable guy's name is Clay and the the doctor who's really interested in um, identity is named Rene Descartes. So yeah. like, is is that lame or is that not lame? Well, oh, like, is not, it different than Stanford this one? This ripped its way into anything interesting. <laughs> but no, I uh, I definitely think it can be. I think like the more um, the more kind of heavy handed it is, and also it can, it can get a little bit lame. But also, I think that if it's something that um, is like so overbearing in the text of a work, like when something with like every character's name is something oh, yeah, like that. Like if yeah. that becomes a little bit more interesting. Uh, Cause you can like, you know, it's easy to sort of draw parallels to it, but yeah, I, mm-hmm. I didn't really notice it. Uh, so I have to say like, I am impressed that you made that connection. Yeah, that's good. Uh, You're getting better. This is kind yeah, of, the, this is kind of antithetical to nihilism, but isn't it pronounced different? That's a good point. Is that even, it's does this nihilism? even make sense? <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess I could be wrong about that Niles thing. I just sort of assume. No, I think you're well, right, I, but it makes me. Yeah, wrong. but maybe they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah, I I mean, with Clay, I, so I actually felt like it annoyed me in that movie, but it's only because I noticed first that it was a weird name for him to have and then figured out it might be a game. Whereas in this movie, I would oh. like play normal. You okay, Curtis? Yeah, my headphones fell out as I was checking the pronunciation. it's it's nihilism yeah okay it's not nihilism or something i thought it was nihilism Um, because one time a a pretentious person said that to me very confidently wow and they were just winging it that (laughs) asshole (laughs) um curtis speaking of your headphones i I think your mic might have switched to your headphone mic oh god um jesus christ you can just switch it back here and and the thing just so people don't have to hear you from your headphones but can I? I didn't talk about this when I mentioned the film. But can I? I think the best thing that movie does is that. So if you're a casting director and you cast Peter Gallagher in something, he's the dad of the bride and of the female love interest in that movie, the female lead. Uh, the fact that they got three actors who all had Peter Gallagher's crazy ass eyebrows is the most <laughs> impressive casting job I have ever seen in a movie. That's very true. Um, but yeah, that, the fact that they found some, all of them to have the exact same eyebrows, yeah. uh, it's just a really nice little touch. You don't see that's that kind nice of attention to detail I, in movies a lot. I liked, yeah. Uh, um, I generally had a good time with the movie. I think it's got some really funny stuff in it. And he's not, yeah, it's not 
groundbreaking really but it's fun um yeah. can, can i say something about character names real quick because like yeah, uh, that was the mine the 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 major gripe or the minor gripe mm-hmm. i don't even know where to put it but uh point yeah but character names are hard you know and it gets a lot worse i think than niles uh there's this book snow crash where the main character's <laughs> name is hero protagonist oh so, yeah we were, we were just saying isn't the new um uh uh the new nolan movie the main character's name is protagonist no is it is something i heard that's yeah. so him mm. <laughs> i mean if if it's the kind of thing that makes you say that's so him that's especially bad <laughs> i mean it, it doesn't surprise me i feel like he would yeah, it, you're right. It, oh, wait. No, 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 no. That might just be like the word. They they maybe don't know the character's name and they're just saying that well, he's was, the Something I, heard, I read was like, I hear that in this new movie, the name is protagonist. Well, I mean, is it like the way uh, Edward Norton's character name in Fight Club is narrator? Yeah, that's. A, I thought about yeah. that. Maybe it's something that you don't actually hear. Um, yeah, it says the man is known only as protagonist. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's probably just they never say his name in the movie. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, Hunter, what else have you been watching this yeah, week? Yeah, so um, I'm just going to use this time to summarize the B-plot from the most recent King of the Hill episode that I watched. <laughs> it's a good one. Uh, I didn't really care for the A-plot too much, but the B-plot was a pretty funny one. So Boomhauer, you know you know how he talks. He's all like... Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. my impression of Boomhauer. Yeah. Pretty good. Um He's on a float trip. He falls asleep, um, and then he wakes up, and he's in the big city. I don't even remember how he, how that even makes sense. But, um, <laughs> but he, uh, you know, he's in the big city, and he doesn't belong there. You know, he talks all weird. Yeah. And so a cop um, takes him to a mental institution. Whoa, uh, that's pretty he can't aggressive. Understand him, which is actually um, probably a better outcome than that situation in real life. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, takes him to a mental institution. He's supposed to be there for 72 hours. Dale is like, I'm going to break him out. He sneaks into the mental institution. Of course, Dale, you know, is, has paranoia and stuff. So he kind of just fits right in and they just assume he's part of it. Um, and then what's the other guy's name? What's the name of the guy that is played by uh, Stephen Root? Bill? I think his name Bill, is Bill. Yeah. Bill, yeah. Bill. So, I'll so take your word for the, it. My favorite part of this B-plot is that Bill comes to rescue them and then he reads a pamphlet on depression, and he just checks himself in. So it's pretty great. <laughs> pretty, this was a pretty good B-flot. Really positive uh, mental health message. Yeah, Hunter, have yeah. you um, have you ever looked at foreign dubs of King of the Hill? The oh scene? This is a very uh, specific question to go with next. The, well, it's just it's a very fun rabbit hole, specifically because Boomhauer has such a unique voice yeah. that you can mm. see different actors in different countries doing with like their own accents. It's a very fun rabbit hole to go down. Uh, yeah, if, I like you that. if you're if you're interested at all in like the way uh, localization and um, stuff like that works for animation. I find that really interesting. I but Boomhauer is such a great example because he's just such a weird voice and actors just get to kind of run with it. Yeah, you so, can have yeah. fun with that one for sure. Hunter, yeah. have you been watching that forever or is it when you showed up in Arkansas, they gave you like a required <laughs> reading? Are you studying no, for your yeah. Arkansas citizenship test? Yeah, so I mean, I'm just nervous about the test. You know, I'm going to have to... <laughs> I'm gonna have to kill a varmint and uh, and make a make a hat, uh, uh-huh. wear a cowboy hat. Uh-huh. Um, 
have I mentioned that they they don't do masks here, but the there is a cowboy hat mandate now. You have yeah. to wear a cowboy hat. You have to have one. It's like pretty fucked up. Yeah. No masks, but cowboy hats everywhere. Well, and if Alex the virus don't. does come out of your hair, it would be really helpful. Don't yeah, talk yeah, yeah. shit about King of the Hill. All right, it's a very yeah, yeah. good show. I was not talking yeah. shit. I was just asking yeah. him a little question about Arkansas because he's never mentioned it to me before. I don't so like I how asking. I don't like how it came out of your mouth though. Yeah. That's fair. Disrespectful. I'm just. Yeah. I was just saying because that's. He'd never mentioned it in our years of to, to friendship. To answer your question, though, I have been watching it forever. It just so rarely, mm. it's it so rarely occurs to me to talk about it mm. on this show mm. that today I was just like, I'll talk about King King of the Hill or it's just fun. this one part of it. Anthony, what else have you been watching this week? Um, so I was out of town for a good portion oh, yeah, of the, the week to the beach. What? Went to the coast for my brother-in-law's wedding. Mm -hmm. A very small, intimate affair. Uh, It was very fun. It was nice to be, um, kind of feel like the world was back to normal. Uh, It got very nostalgic for that. And I had a very, very kind of uh, interesting, nostalgic uh, flashback as well regarding, uh, so we were at this hotel. And it's only at hotels do I ever find myself in this situation uh, but you remember the good old days before streaming when you had to just find something to watch and hope oh, you caught dude. it near the beginning? <laughs> um, <laughs> like that, just flipping through channels because that's what like hotel rooms have. So yeah, yeah. my wife and I were, were in a hotel room looking for something to watch and we were flipping through and we were got very, very lucky when we caught uh, Men in Black in the first five minutes of it. Uh, so we felt very good about that, and then we watched Men in Black one and two back to back. Well, oh, nice. I watched Men and two, Men in Black one and two. Had to fell asleep after Men in Black one. Um, not the worst decision but, she's ever made. Yeah, not a bad. I had never seen Men in Black two. Somehow, oh, somehow I've seen I've seen three, but I never saw two. Uh, and two's real bad. It turns out it's just <laughs> as bad. And it's weird watching them back to back because, you know, like a lot of directors, you will sort of see like, especially if you look at sort of the long arc of their career, there's usually a point when most of them kind of lose it. When like the spark and the flame just dies and it's usually you can find like the one movie that did it. And mm-hmm. it's so interesting with Barry Seinenfeld and the like the watched Men in Black 1 and 2. Because between those two movies, he did Wild Wild West. And oh, yeah. it's just so – there's like an, a spark and there's just so much like fun and life inside the first Men in Black movie. It's so charming, so charismatic. It's so specific in its oddness. Um, you know, Barry Seinenfeld, you know, producer – I'm not producer, but cinematographer for the Coen brothers for a long time. Oh. Has such a unique way of shooting movies – and the Adams Family movies, uh, Men in Black, he was just on this incredible role. And then he does Wild Wild West. And immediately from the beginning of Men in Black 2, you, you can just tell, like, oh, he's broken. Uh, <laughs> something <laughs> something died in him. And it's just like, you know, like, it, it's not just like the bad box office or whatever. But it's like when you're a creative individual and... Uh, you're riding high and you're making bold choices and those choices pay off, right? You you can only really sort of trust your instincts right. as a filmmaker. And then, and then you, when you make something that people go, that was a fucking garbage. What is wrong with you? It makes you begin to doubt 
those yeah. instincts, right? You you never have you begin to second guess yourself. And this is you can see this with a lot of filmmakers. Like M. Night Shyamalan's another great example of like the second he became an uncritical darling, you just an artist just becomes really self conscious and they yeah. get in their heads and they're stopped and not able to like make those unique ideas. And it's when you're watching the two movies back to back, it is so obvious to see that he's just like what, I don't I don't know what to do and the movie's a mess. Like Men in Black Two is like ninety seven minutes. Like it's ridiculously short for a movie um of this sort of genre and of this time period. And it is uh it's so bizarre and I, I did not like it. It's such a disappointment uh, too, because I feel like coming out of Men in Black was probably the most I've ever wanted to see six sequels to a movie. Where yeah. it felt like that movie feels like the pilot for a whole world that we're gonna get. To, I want to hang out in. I want to. I definitely want to see what it, how his Men in Black changed now that Will Smith is a full time yeah. agent and he's running his own yeah. thing. Like, and I just want to see every new Alien and every like. There's an infinite number of great things that could exist in this well, world, and they chose did you not to. Out, did you ever look at the animated series on the WB, or are you just complaining? <laughs> I did not. That's true. <laughs> well, it's it's also so weird to watch Men in Black one to two right back to back because one sets up like, okay, cool, like you said, Jay is now a permanent agent, and he has this new former mortician. Uh, agent, like a partner, and she's completely not there in the movie. They hand wave her away at really? one point that she decided wanted to go back to the morgue. Uh, as like Weird. a throwaway line, but it's exactly it's exactly like you said. They set up perfectly what the sequel would be, and it's then they so, completely so swerve. Women and the in whole black. plot it was is like about right there. Getting Tommy Lee Jones back in the game, yeah. Um, but yeah, it is such yeah. a so, weird, bad movie. Uh, very strange, but yeah, it was weird yeah. to see him back to back. Yeah. They, this is the, the only men in men in black fun fact, uh, that I have, <laughs> uh, very late on us. I'm actually not sure if it's a fact I'm checking right now. I'm pretty sure I'm like, 90% oh, it could be a fun sure. fiction. Hmm. Okay. So. Uh, so, okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a fact. So there's this comedy album, uh, called assorted nuts by the now defunct label laughs unlimited. It was recorded at, I think an abandoned comedy club in the eighties in San mm. Diego. You can find it for a dollar, uh, at any flea market that also sells the crepitition album, which is just <laughs> an album of a fart contest. <laughs> uh, and on this album, You'll find a bunch of people uh, of like all sort. You can look them up, and they're all sorts of like different accolades. There's John Fox, who became like an infamous, an infamous folk figure, coke addict comedian. There's a guy who ended up being a news anchor for like 20 years and just recently took a teaching position at a San Diego community college. There's a guy who does corporate gigs. There's a guy who uh, is an alcoholic who still does open mics in San Diego. And then there is Dana Carvey and Ed Solomon, who went on to write yeah. Yeah. Uh, Men Bill in Black, Bill and Ted's Excellent and, yeah. Adventure, and was uncredited in the 1999 X-Men movie. <laughs> and he did not write Men in Black 2. Uh, yes. That was another thing I, I, was, I thought was very interesting, seeing a completely different writing team brought over. Well, is it... Yeah. So I was- I was just trying to, I was just learning about how screenwriting works today in a book. And it suggested that 
um, there's like people who write the first draft, and then you get fired, and there's like 24 different writers, and then you get yeah. rehired to finish it. Yeah, that is not <laughs> what happened with Men in Black 2. Okay. He, Ed Solomon never did a draft on it. He was, oh, okay. he's not they even brought black. in different people, yeah. Ed Solomon, also, fun, I don't fact, think he... fun fact, follows me on Twitter. Oh, oh. Nice. Twitter buddies. He had a great tweet about uh, he overheard a coffee shop conversation about Men in Black, and he turned to explain it to these two people, and they screamed at him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he just was like okay fair enough and i was like oh, what interesting way <laughs> yeah, to handle that great. i like him a lot on twitter and, I, and that's how we ended up yeah anyway um uh let's uh let's finish this with you curtis what else have you been watching this week well nothing you know i watched clash of the titans yesterday the okay. original or the remake oh the remake uh what? just just a big uh sam worthington streak you're on right now <laughs> you know you yeah, know what, when what? you're just like mostly i want to be on my phone <laughs> gotcha. silent. and then i watched uh we watched uh high we watched the high fidelity uh series and then we watched the high fidelity movie for the first time oh interesting uh Wait, and so then you've never um, seen you've never seen the john cusack movie you watched the new series and then went backwards not a big John Cusack guy, big Joan oh, Cusack guy, not a big John Cusack. <laughs> sure. Well, the thing about that is that usually a lot of times, at least for the '90s, they were kind of like a package deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you get if you get John, you're gonna get Joan. But less yeah. if you get Joan, you're less likely to get John. See, but right. I didn't know any. I saw uh, what show? I saw a, a couple seasons of Shameless, and I was like, "Who is this woman? Where did she come from? <laughs> she is great." And it yeah. turns out she's been around for a while. Yeah. Um. So what? It, actually, I just want to like revel in that a little longer. The genre of film that is like I mostly like to be on my phone right now. That's where I've been most of the like a lot of this has either been like I want to watch something really compelling and good and fascinating, or I want to be able to look at it after not paying attention for three hours and know exactly what's happening. Totally. That's really fun. Um, all right, let's get into your movie this week, which is um, a little bit more of that, uh, the former kind. So this week's topic is the 1993 film Suture, written by Scott McGee and uh, written and directed by Scott McGee and David Siegel, starring the Allstate guy and Mel Harris. Hey, um, that's Doc, that's President Palmer, you asshole. <laughs> all right. He's not he is not going to help fucking Kiefer Sutherland save the world within 24 hours <laughs> for three seasons for you to disrespect him like that. I, I'm sure he got paid more for being the Allstate guy, so I don't know right. if it's really an insult. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I didn't realize he got promoted from Senator, so good for him running for president on that show. Um, I I really like him. It is interesting when somebody has a voice that's like, this voice is so good, it needs to be Every it needs to be on all the like I can see why everyone hear it hears it and is like oh he should represent my brand. It's just mm. a really really satisfyingly deep voice. Yeah, it's um, like um, it's if you if you need a voice like that, you either go him or Keith David. Uh, but Keith David, oh Keith is, David, yeah, uh, what a great! I'm always happy to see him. Oh yeah, Keith David. Oh yeah, yeah. I was just playing um. A video game today that Keith David randomly popped in. I feel Let's like he's ahead. in a lot. I feel like yeah. he's in a lot of games, actually. He's, he's got that he's voice. He's all it's, over the place. Yeah, he was the voice of the army for years, which is kind of weird. He was. Yeah. But weird. I still yeah. always think of him as either the lead gargoyle or the ass-to-ass -ass man. 
there's really yeah. oh my god <laughs> yeah imagine seeing both of those people yeah. i i always just go to the guy who refuses to pit on the sunglasses and is gonna have to get his ass kicked to, uh, to do it yeah i don't understand half these references okay so the um but we're talking about suture 1993, and I, I I made this weird reference to like what else could have been. So let me just give you some. Uh, this is what when I asked Curtis what he wanted to watch for this episode, he gave me three options, or he pitched three options, but then solved it on, in the middle of the third one. So uh, number one was Killer of Sheep, um, which is very dramatic, black and white cinephile classic. Not sure it would be fun. Like, okay, that's a good start. That's a powerful start. Number two, Watermelon. Never, never seen it. What, listen, Watermelon Man. You guys should watch. It sounds totally. Uh, I'm open to it. Uh, and then, at, what happened was, as you were typing the third one, you decided that it was the right answer. And well, because so, you you wanted like a bougie thing, right? That seemed to not, be the theme. I did not say that. So I, I was, in fact, I was very clear that we'd already done. Um, uh, we watched Hairspray and Clifford, so not all bougie. Um, but anyway, uh, so tell us why you picked Suture instead of the other two options. Well, because I thought you wanted something bougie, Alex. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so misunderstanding this. I mean, Killer of Sheep would have been interesting because you would have paid for whatever rent I needed to watch it. Uh, and I've been meaning to watch it for like 10 years. Uh-huh. It's supposed to be like one of the most influential pieces of black cinema in American history. And I just haven't gotten around to it because okay, well, we'll, we'll anytime you hear the words TV. black cinema, you go, probably it's going to be sad. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then we'll come back to it. I'm super interested in that. That's supposed to be really good. Watermelon man, I think is uh, really interesting, but I think it takes like a decent, not a lot, but like a decent amount of, uh context where it's like it's godfrey cambridge and so i think you have to understand a little bit about who he is and then you have to understand like the civil rights period at the time and the way that comedy worked and then it's uh i think it's interesting to watch through that lens but i don't know if it's like particularly fun oh that was a melvin now. van peebles movie too that would be yeah and yeah i've only ever seen that for sure i've only ever seen his uh sweetback uh movies uh but yeah Interesting. Yeah, well, that's okay. So now, now, now the one that we're actually doing. So tell, tell me about Suture and how this came into your life and why you're thinking about it. Uh, I was a film major in college and I thought you wanted something pretentious. And uh, <laughs> you, said, you mentioned some of the other guests you had on the show and it seemed like they had kind of done their thing where it was like you had a woman on the show and she did a woman show, a movie. <laughs> and you had... <laughs> You had someone else on the show I'd never heard of, and they did hairspray. So you know, I made a bunch of assumptions about who they were as a person. Never heard of, probably you never wrong. heard of your close friend and person we ran a show with for years, Bree Pruitt. Was it Bree Pruitt the hairspray one? Yeah. Uh, that matter. Which hairspray was it? The Waters one or the remake? The Waters one. Okay, tell me something about Suture, or I'm just going to read oh. your text back to you. I uh, it's I think it's interesting. Uh, I I tried to look up a more succinct. Well, I, I, for, I, there's a more succinct explanation than this, but like the concept of suture as a as a cinematic uh, like uh, language uh, versus like what this movie is about versus how like I feel like the parts of this movie that I think are interesting 
happened accidentally. Mm-hmm. And I think the things of the movie that they thought were interesting really do not hold up particularly well. <laughs> it, Great. it is like a um, almost extreme exercise in suspension of disbelief, like from a premise yeah. point. That's like it is, the part. How far can we stretch that? And like, get, have the audience still be with it, which right. I, I assume you're talking about the fact that, I, that he lives in a bank branch, and we so, have to try to suspend our disbelief about that ha- being a house and not a bank branch. So this is this is the explanation that I was able to find that I think summarized it the cleanest. Suture, in this sense, refers to how the story world of a film stitches together an imaginary reality, and even more than this, one that possesses a semblance of coherence and wholeness that, while while attending to it and seemingly participating within it, we do not reflect upon as something that has been fabricated, that has been constructed. In short, when we are successfully sutured, we do not pay attention to the seams that mark the points at which uh, distinct pieces of the fabric of the film story world have been stitched together. Man... I'm so glad so, you said that. So I, because I did not, I like discovered afterwards that suture is a term in film theory. And I read probably 10 different descriptions of what the term means in psychoanalysis. Oh, so unhelpful. And <laughs> it is the most obtu- intentionally obtuse, slightly douchey descriptions of a thing. Like there's, there is no, here's the plain version of this for dummies. It's just like, the, the only people who are going to talk about this are people who want to read academic papers. And it's yeah. it was very frustrating. So the way that I, cause I think we probably read the same things that popped up on Google. Yeah. And the thing that the, the way that I took it to mean is like, if a, if you, if a movie starts off with a shot of the ocean and then pulls back and you see a man staring at the ocean, you've been sutured. Cause you, you are no longer the of that guy. Yeah, you're no longer the viewer. You're reading the interpretation that the film expects of you. So you are now behind the invisible idea of film as an active participant in the movie. And you're not supposed to wonder what is that guy looking at. You're supposed to just know. So then the fact that this movie went out of its way to contrast the narrative with your knowledge as a viewer is continuously like suturing you and then unsuturing you. I think so. Well, we're we're going to have to come back to this then, because my question that emerges from that is, is this whole thing douchey? Um, but before we get to that, um, <laughs> we, have to, we have to do the everybody's favorite segment, yes. Alex's patented three sentence summary of this movie. So the, in case you have not seen the 1993 film Suture. Um, oh, actually, I did want to also say, since you did not actually say this out loud from your text, um one of the things you said about this movie was you said, it's the movie I've spent the most time at dinner parties saying, has anyone seen this wild shit? (laughs) Good reason to watch the movie uh, as far as I was concerned. Okay. But here's my patented three sentence summary of the movie suture from 1993 clay and Vincent are identical half brothers, despite being different races where one is black and the other one is half snake. Um, who haven't seen each other in a long time, but get reacquainted at the funeral of their father, whom Vincent recently murdered. Number two, Vincent tricks Clay into dressing like him and carrying his wallet and stuff and then blows him up with a car bomb that is so sophisticated it only kills the driver if they're dumb enough to wear a seatbelt. Clay wakes up alive but with amnesia and is told that he is Vincent, which he decides is such a dope person to be that after he beats the murder app, gets his memory back and shoots the real Vincent in the face, he continues to live as Vincent and never goes back to his actual girlfriend and dog. See... 
<laughs> but that's the part that I think was interesting on accident. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the film. I think the film was like two white guys being like, what if they were identical, but one of them is black and right. that will be crazy. And you're like, all right, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> and then you watch the movie and you're like, what if them was a working class representative of black culture who literally had to kill and disfigure the white embodiment <laughs> of privilege to then inherit their position yeah. By giving a part of themselves away and living in the constant presence of a lie just to have access to economic stability. And that's damn. the part where I'm like, well, that was not on purpose. Well, you know that. Yeah. Well, damn. that's that's the thing. It's like that is like such an interesting reading and something that I think is like I really wanted to take away from the film, but it's again that purpose I don't think it's purposeful because the psychiatrist narration is literally oh, like yeah. accosting yeah. the character for doing then, this, right? It is that was huh. so my wife and I had a big conversation about this because she uh, she watched it with me and I don't know how much she was happy about it, but <laughs> And that is the the running theme of this podcast is making our partners watch things and then them regretting it. (laughs) But one thing she, she brought up like the same thing, which was like the intent of the director versus the narration versus what you're watching on screen. And like the weird thing about the intention of them calling it suture and pointing out the film concept is that any choice they make or anything you think about when the film is done is like, so succinctly put on your shoulders it's kind of like i can't decide if it's an artistic choice or a huge cop-out to be like Mm -hmm. we told you this was two people who look identical we happen to cast a black guy anything you assign to that is you and that i can't decide if that's like the lamest thing in the world or a very interesting choice yeah i don't know if anyone else got this but i think you know this movie is obviously an incredibly low budget film and it feels like they ran out of money while they still had like 20 pages left of film. That you know? actually would probably like, track pretty well with what I read about especially it. Especially stuff like this whole, this, this whole like weird character named Alice, who's like his accountant, but possibly <laughs> like older lover who is like a mother figure and like, is like possibly, possibly in on it, but maybe not. Those things, but then when you have amnesia, she's trying to plant that she's your lover. Yeah. You and get access just, to you. A variety is, of interesting options. It is never really expand. Like they go through the effort of like showing her at one point watching from a distance in a way that makes it look like she's in on it with the real Vincent, but then it just never gets brought up again. They're drop so threads. It, oh, it just, so interesting. That's what just feels like they didn't have the um, the money to sort of film. But then there's also things in this movie. Like, so there is, you know, this therapist who, for some reason, even though it's the 90s, is still in the Freud and dream interpretation. Yeah. And uh, hypnotism. Yeah. And hypnotism. There's this, this plastic surgeon who has, like, this very kind of floaty monologue when she's talking about the wonders of phrenology. Yeah, and like skull measuring and stuff. I'm like so that. glad you brought that moment up. Stuff that like that. has to be, you know, you think it has to be purposeful, right? You're not going to have like this character talking about like one if it if they did cast two white leads 
and you had this doctor talking about like your beautiful Greek nose and what that says about your intellect, right? That yeah. scene would come off so in, much more upsetting in, than it does. Yeah. Specifically, that's well, the scene yeah. that feels like they were patting themselves on the back, and right. that's like yeah, the yeah. scene that I'm like most like, all right, we get it at this point. Well, yeah. But also, I think that scene also really emphasizes like where they were they were missing their own point because one of the things that she describes, she re- repeatedly describes uh, characteristics that he does not have and how those characteristics are all associated with goodness in this version of science. That's like, if you have thin straight hair and thin lips, those make you a good person. Like there's such a weird racist thing happening there that we do not get to care about. Yeah. That we're not, that's not an important part of the movie to them. That's just like a kind of a fun thing. Anyway, moving on. Um, Very strange. With the doctors and everything, this is something that I've uh, wondered every time that I've watched this because it feels like there is enough purposefulness that this would be intentional, but I don't know what it's supposed to mean. The only other non-white person is the Asian psychologist. Sam Mm -hmm. Shimono. So what what does that mean? (laughs) It feels like it it was purposeful enough, but I don't get it. Well, especially because he's like, contrasted against you know this office which is you know eight by eight ink blot paintings everywhere and this idea of like wait you're talking about the wait there was this really you're saying okay in his office the the psychologist had a really sexy painting of my ex-girlfriend making out with Minnie Mouse you're saying that was <laughs> no that that actually wasn't it at all it was uh, my it was? dad and he was a cowboy but he had his painter out um, oh that's interesting what it was. I didn't know I don't think that's what it was at all it was uh, no I saw and, it and I was yeah. like I get it he's a psychologist I and I didn't know before he had a picture of my specific situation on his wall but so, yeah, okay. it is like the the idea that he is in this room constantly where you're supposed to see what you want to see, right? And the fact yeah. that he is the only other non-white person and the only person who seems genuinely upset about this guy, you know, escaping from his station in life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is so, so is so yeah. Like, but also weird. it has the fun aspect of like the narrator is mad at one of the characters, which you don't get that often. There's like, like he's just like the narrator's a dick, which is fascinating. There's so many the, interesting things so, going on, but I don't know that there's what if what they're saying or if they are saying something about yeah, it. This yeah. movie I, is essentially like twenty minutes too short to be a really good movie, and thirty <laughs> minutes too long <laughs> to be a pretty interesting twilight zone episode you know yeah. what i mean like, yeah such a is, good point it feels like it's kind of in between there you know um i i want to say something about the uh the budget you mentioned them running out of money um which i think is also related to the fact that they don't seem to understand the class issues they're writing about which is this this sentence from wikipedia that said um, that the writers had made some short films together and decided to make a feature. So they borrowed the f- money for the film about a million dollars from friends and family to make it. Um, that is either some rich ass friends or a really large number of poor friends. Mm. Well, I mean, that's I, just also classic low budget film financing. Well, Most also of them Steven, have a Steven Soderbergh helped them too. Yeah. Well, he so like Steven solid. Soderbergh came in after oh, they raised yeah. the million finished shooting it and couldn't afford to edit it. 
Vince Sundberg that was interesting, and he put in some more money. So yeah. it's, it's pretty close to what Anthony said about them like running out of money and then bringing in uh, and we, filming it. But just like a real quick side note to that, you can borrow a million dollars. Like that just doesn't seem like they're super aware of um, um, class implications. But yeah, we, this is a quick side note. We haven't really had a chance to talk about him on the podcast, but Steven Soderbergh just seems like a cool guy. The amount of like <laughs> filmmakers he has helped out. And the stuff he does, uh, I don't know cool dude. I, I like him quite a bit. Uh, his movies are, range from okay to great. Uh, but yeah, just the amount of like people he helps out and goes out on a limb for. like He's built a career off that, sure, and he's, cool. he's awesome. I yeah, uh, have he, a lot yeah. of respect for him. Yeah, he's got a lot of money from his Ocean's Eleven trilogy. <laughs> yeah. Ocean's Eleven made up for Ocean's Twelve and Ocean's Thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh. Okay. So let's talk now about the what they what is clearly an important central thing, um, which is the the colorblind casting. So what is the what is the deal here? What are some See, other film history colorblind casting? Yeah. What. That's the thing because it, like yeah. so I can't I can't find any information that says explicitly they wrote the script with this in mind but just from having they watched I, the way I, they I, shot yeah, they have to have I found yeah, an interview I found an oh, interview okay. um, with uh, David Siegel Spiegel I forget I don't know his name um, but he because that was the I thought it would be like you know how there's like the inverse of this happens a lot. And they say like, look, we would have loved to cast, you know, Arab or black actors in the role, but we just cast whoever was best in the room. And it just all happens to be white guys. Right. Right. And it's like, it's such lame. And like, if this was legitimately like, look, we can't find two actors who look together. They just both gave the best readings. So we cast it. That would be interesting. But I found an interview um, with David when he said specifically when they were considering sort of this idea, the way they wrote this movie is they were very interesting, interested in like the Hitchcockian thriller and film noir and put together a list of like uh, things about identity they wanted to tackle. Uh, And he said like it didn't really come together until we hit on the idea of casting one white lead and one black lead. Well, I guess white lead is kind of not. Because he's barely in the movie. Um, But uh, a white actor and a black actor, and that's really what got us going. So that was like an important impetus into like making this Uh, movie happen. Uh, Go ahead, Chris. That's just what like that's a that's another interesting example, I think, of how clear it is that this is coming. uh, Not just from white people, but from white people who maybe have not given that much consideration to what they're doing in terms of black representation, because like in making one black and one white, you've completely lost the thread of it being about identity. It is now about like a way more general issue. Yeah. Yeah. It goes into this just white filmmaker, privileged white filmmakers using black bodies to get like applause on the back. Right. Like we're literally just, um, you know, especially because if you look at um, what is the 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 actor's name in this, but he was like coming off Major League uh, around this time, so he had been in things. And he, I was reading about oh, how um, the main, the lead in oh, this movie, yeah, I'll take but, Dennis yeah. Dennis yeah. But he, I was reading an interview, like I said, with David Spiegel, and he was talking about. Um, 
how he had been in Major League and a few things, and he had shot this big movie um, that Denzel Washington had to drop out of a role for it, and it like it got held up in financial lingo limbo, so it wasn't going to come out for like a year or two after this. So they knew they were going to get someone who was going to be a big star. So they were able to get him. They, he specifically said we were able to get him for like a role that after this movie came out, he would not take this movie. So they like purposely vulched him, like grabbed him at this specific point in his career to use yeah. him. Um, and it's, the whole thing kind of made me feel a little like weirded out and skeezy about it. Um, especially because, like yeah, I said, I don't think they really to it. They don't think I don't think they do enough of it. There is definitely something here. Like I look the, like I said, those Hitchcockian themes of identity, and this is very North by Northwest esque. Well, yeah, uh, there, those kind of movies. Sort of idea, there's like a separate movie. Uh, there's like it feels like this, this movie. I feel like I, I have like seven ideas for movies that are almost this, but a little different. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an interesting way to write cinema where you're like it's a very, wrote, it, it feels yeah. like a film school movie it feels like a movie that someone made in Which, in their class I, yeah and i thought that's what you wanted douchey psychoanalytic <laughs> uh film term right uh it does sound like this is made for that which yeah well I I'm gonna refine how I ask people questions based on this. I, each each week <laughs> it's a little different, and I'll I mean I'll the conversation emphasize the, that we did watch Clifford. That's gonna be a thing I'm gonna right, push yeah, really yeah. hard. I have never heard of it. Oh okay. Um, it is uh, anytime it's just a one white name. I assume that it's like angsty and like right. oh that's so like fair. The graduate or something. Ben no. Stewart. This, I don't know. This is a pretty pretty angsty movie, Clifford. <laughs> so uh, Clifford, uh, just to catch you up real quick, is Martin Short, when he's 45, plays a 10-year-old, and they never talk about it. Oh, it's this movie, but with age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's yeah. like, there's oh, this shit. movie, there's Shallow Hell, you know, it's a whole little genre. <laughs> oh, that's such an interesting connection I didn't even think about. Um one thing, one movie that I thought of from watching, or one one thing that I think, so one interesting thread here: the idea of amnesia and a guy who may, who may or may not have done a murder. Like this whole part of the movie where he's like coming to, he's like being told who he is. He's watching videos of himself. He's like, oh, I used to be so grumpy looking, um, and I guess being rich is kind of fun, but I hate the way I decorated. And then he's also like, I might have shot my dad. I do not know. That's so interesting to have somebody like dealing with the new memory of having murdered. Mm. And I could yeah. totally see a movie where they were not dealing with the other stuff. They were just like a person who is recovering from a brain injury, having to learn that they did something bad. There's definitely an interesting story. In this that. is where it makes, it makes sense. Like not having known about the interview that Anthony found, like the fact that they didn't know what they were doing until they decided to make it a race issue film like makes sense because like we know he didn't kill his father. So the suspense of him learning he might have is not interesting totally. for two right. hours. Such right. a good point. They've, they've hung every, like their entire hat hangs on Dennis Hayworth being black. And the rest of the film is like, we know the answers. Yeah. And I'm, if it, if it was more of a procedural, like we know he didn't do it. So how's he going to get out of it? And it involved right. him being like a proactive lead. 
in trying to get out of this mode. Instead, yeah. it's just like this plot that is dropped. I do want to well, get back. Well, uh, I, just, before you get okay. back to that, just the instead of that, instead of him going through all of that, not only do we know that he didn't do it, but we are introduced to the sole witness. And her thing is, I can tell nearly identical people apart. So there's not a lot of mystery about how he's going to get out of it either. Because you mm-hmm. know the lady who can tell yeah. her two identical birds apart is going to be like, that guy has different ears. And then it's over. So it did kind of follow exactly where you were expecting it to go. I also don't, you know, I don't think uh, cops are the most scrupulous people. But this cop being like, are, are you sure it's not him? It's like, I don't think that's uh, how lineups are supposed to work. I don't well, right. I, do, I do like that the lawyer in the movie is like, uh, I think what you mean to ask. Yeah. <laughs> So I I don't haven't been in a lineup, but that I assume that's how it is actually happens is that the cops say something that they should not. And then the lawyer's like, you're going to ruin this for yourself later. Like, you can't say this shit. Right. I'm going to destroy you at trial. Yeah, um, I, I've seen yeah. enough, enough uh, true crime to know that's usually how it goes. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, the thing I, I, just, I wanted to say this earlier and I just it was way funnier then. But I just want to point out that I hadn't read the interview with david siegel but i knew that this is what they were planning it wasn't like a thing they decided in the casting room because if they had just decided this in casting they wouldn't be 17 lines where someone says right well, you're identical looking well we are identical looking did you know how identical looking we are because mm-hmm. if they did look identical just, they just keep just circling know. back to it over and over as if yeah. it's almost as if they think you can't make that jump so they have to tell you over and over so it makes you feel like you're a dumb idiot and that that's you don't really, know how movies work. That's the part that I am like, I can't like, that's the part where I keep being like, is this like smart in a way that I don't care about? Or is it the dumbest thing? Yeah. Where it's it like, feels so dumb I when guess, those moments happen, but yeah, I, the, I, I don't think it's yeah. dumb overall. No, when those moments happen, it's super dumb. But also I feel like me thinking it's dumb is that I can't tell it. So I know the the parts of this that are interesting about race, I know they did on accident. The parts of this that are interesting with regards to the concept of suture as a cinematic term, I cannot tell if they hit the nail on the head or if that whole concept is just so outdated and ridiculous that there's no reason to give a fuck. Yeah. Well, yeah and it's like I am I am someone who I would rather uh always watch like a interesting failure than yeah. like a pretty good um, not someone Born, not even yeah. trying. You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I I always prefer so people to swing for the fences, yeah. and I do think that this is you know this is such a wild fucking swing that it is like it's like when you hear about like movies that have like uh I was reading about uh in the Robert Ever review for this movie yeah. i forget the name of it but he was talking about this french film that has uh he hated this movie two, two, yeah. he, gave it, yeah. he gave it he gave it like three stars i think oh interesting or, i just yeah. remember reading the summary and being like oh you did not have a good time but here Rob. it's just like again that kind of like it's just an interesting experiment right there's not a lot of there there he says but he admires the audacity of it but there's yeah. like i know like this french filmmaker who cast the movie with two different actresses playing one role, but they never bring it up. It's just oh. purely an experiment for how audience react and like yeah. what, what you're mm-hmm. buying into. And I uh, think so stuff, he's stuff referring like to that is... The wickedly anarchistic Spanish filmmaker Luis Buñuel. 
Yeah, uh, and I think stuff like that is just like it's interesting, and like this is the time in your career when it's your first film, sort of out of college, to try stuff like this. I mean, this film has so many things that are like, oh wow, this is a first time filmmaking duo right here, you know? Right. Just things that like these these edges that get sanded off for better or worse as you make more movies. So, I mean, there are some interesting ideas. This movie uses mirrors a lot in some pretty interesting ways. Yeah. Um, the dream imagery, I found to be pretty lame. Uh, yeah. and not very, not very <laughs> imaginative. I frequently but, like, find dream stuff to be lame. But then also it's so focused on this Freudian interpretation of dreams where he's like, yeah. it's, yeah. it's very movie science. And yeah, I mean, and you mentioned that it's 94, and so it's weird for them to be super into, and it like, clearly takes place in the 90s. It's weird for this guy to be so interested in Freud, when I think by 94, we generally realized that he was kind of a dum-dum. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Freud so, did say, uh, <laughs> which is a line that Doctor says like, yeah. three times in the movie. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but also, like, I guess... It just feels weird that all that is happening. But the other thing is that we're supposed to feel like this is the 60s in some ways. That's why it's in black and white. That's why the architecture is what it is. So there is like they're making an interesting time thing where you want we want the feel of the 60s, but to exist in the with with a car phone. Mm. Yeah. Hunter, you've been really quiet for a little while. How are you feeling about all of this? Are we missing the points that you want to make or are we just nailing it so hard? Oh, no. Know? Yeah. Yeah. You- are you talking to me? Because you guys are nailing it real hard. Um, I was actually, I think, worried that I was going to have to be the person that didn't like this movie very much, but I feel like we're all kind of in agreement. To take it to a slightly different place, though, one thing that I think is interesting about watching a movie made by, like, you know, kind of first-time filmmakers is I feel like one of the things that people, um, I feel like, learn last um, as filmmakers is, like, how to direct actors. So there's a Mm. lot of really weird... Um, style stuff going on with the acting in this movie in that some people, uh, especially like minor characters, have this kind of almost B-movie style that they're doing. And there's enough people doing it that I feel like they're being told to do it, not they are all making the same choice um, Mm -hmm. just by happenstance. Uh, That really kind of graded me. There's some like the dialogue sequences have like a lot of unmotivated like just like shifts and blocking like a spe- oh man blocking like if you if if you want to feel like how much i think uh well actually these guys didn't even go to film school i just read that which is which is weird cuz they they seem like people that just got out of film school cuz i feel like <laughs> film school does not teach you how to like block with actors and that's like some of the worst scenes in this are the scenes with um uh, miss Descartes um and our lead and they're talking and her delivery it, like she's uh what's her name mel harris um she seems like she's probably a very good actress and she is being told to like ham it up to almost like the room levels like she has some like <laughs> real weird reads yeah. and then like 
just the camera will just like kind of change to a cool shot in air quotes, but they're just like having a normal conversation and there's no reason for the camera <laughs> to move in this way. And it also doesn't feel like a super important scene. So why does everything look so fucking cool right now? You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's a cool movie, but then there's just like moments where it's like, I just feel like people are kind of doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. <laughs> it, it sounds like you're also yeah. kind of echoing Ebert's, feelings which was like it's cool looking and there's not a ton of substance beneath it but it is still cool looking which is something it's definitely cool looking it's which cool is kind of more on the cinematographer than it is on them though i feel so like like i don't know what the word like i don't it's cool looking in a way that makes me feel juvenile like like it's the same thing that happens in some quentin tarantino movies where i'm yeah. like that's so cool but also i'm like almost 30 so that like probably shouldn't be as cool as i think it is we're like that guy's black and he's got a shotgun and he's in the tub and the other guy's white and he has a different gun and he's on the other side of the tub <laughs> and that really does it for me i well i will say also to hunter what you just uh about your feelings about having to come in and, and crush everybody is that i also had kind of a good time but I agree with oh, all yeah, of the yeah. criticism of it is how I came out of it. So, like, this is not an unenjoyable 97 minutes. Oh, no, no, no. It's not a bad movie. I think it's just, it, like somebody said earlier, it's like it's a failed movie. Like, yeah. it, it does, And if it succeeds, I think it succeeds in the way that Curtis was saying, where no one actually knew what they were making. <laughs> I, kind of yeah. I, I think that this is a much more interesting movie in 2020. Um than it was in 93, if that oh, makes sense. Solely yeah. because so much more of this stuff is at the sort of the cultural front and the conversations we're having around uh, in general and the sort of like the way other films of the past few years yeah. can deal with race in a much more sort of open way. That I do think that this sort of like the heavy sort of uh, racial uh, and class kind of stuff to this film is so much more prominent and obvious now than it would have been in 93. Sure, sure, sure. But I want to say something about that that kind of annoys me because I had the exact same thought. But then I was kind of like, why does this movie look so good? And I realized it was in 4K and they did a 4K restoration of this movie in 2016, which makes me feel like they had the same thought we just had. And if they had that thought, uh, it kind of makes them super lame, right? Like they're kind of like, yeah. oh no, it's a re- no, now it's even better. So now we're going to do a 4K restoration of this movie like nobody, like few people saw in 93. Like That has been... Like the big, the big takeaway after talking to Brandon, uh, my wife about this was like, this movie would have been really, really good if black people had made it, but yeah. white people made it. So yeah. it's fine. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> good point. this, I, uh, I agree. I mean, it also could have been like, you know, the all state guy has got like, good, you know how like after Brad Pitt became a big movie, the cool world became like a big thing. They re-released right, right, right even though he's only in it for 30 seconds. Uh, it could have been, you know, could have just been that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do want to ask you guys a real wild sort of change uh, in subject. Good. But something right. I was thinking about while watching this movie is, you know, just due to my life and the movies I watched growing up and the video games I played, I was positive that amnesia and quicksand were going to be much yes. bigger things oh, in yeah. my life. Uh, <laughs> amnesia, especially, I just thought was like, I'll, I'll definitely meet at least five people who have oh, amnesia in my life. Uh, 
at yeah, some point, I'll have to, I'll have done some amnesia because it's yeah. just everywhere. But and said no, I've definitely when I drank, I definitely had short term blackout <laughs> amnesia a lot. Uh, Isn't but, the point in Memento? Is there like that? This is the kind of amnesia that actually happens. Is where you stop oh, making yeah. new memories, but no, like the kind where you just forget your whole past basically only exists in in high concept films. I mean, it does happen. You hear about it every once in a while. You know, but it's not um, common. But yeah, no, it is very rare. It is weird to have something that is like such a good movie premise, such yeah. a useful well, movie tool that isn't real. Like it's almost it's, like the world is disappointing by not it's having. So it's so not real that I don't know. I just think that one time a guy got caught doing something, and he was just like, "Oh, I didn't know I was Bob," and then everyone just went yeah. with it. It's mm. possible. Yeah, it's especially like video games because it's such a useful trope to be able to like start a new character at the beginning. So you give them amnesia, right? right? Um, But yeah, it is one of those things. It's like, um, like, uh, like most, like, like you know, this people are starting to become more aware of it. Like people are starting to again. It's a very sort of like last few years. People are more aware about the way we talk about like mental. disease and afflictions in movies right and like split personality is one of those things that is like incredibly rare and people use it in movies in a lot of very disrespectful and fictional ways and it just helps stigmatize people who do have it but it's an incredibly rare thing to actually see that like movies would make you think one in ten person is a you know a multiple personality disorder person but no it's incredibly (laughs) rare so uh, think, yeah, that's my favorite part of Split. I just yeah, like, one of the personalities is a literal monster. I don't know. Yeah. Have fun. Yeah, just gives you know that that's always good to help actual people with uh, illness is to imply that they might have superpowers. <laughs> right. uh, that's definitely a great message to put out in the. Uh, if in you the did ego. that violent change of pace, which was fun. I have two really stupid things that I want to talk about quickly, and then I have a couple of segments to wrap up. So, first of all, uh, not a super professional doctor, um, the way she just like starts fucking this patient right away. Yeah, um, that's pretty messed up. But there is well, a lot. This movie black all of a sudden. She had to get that sweet. I don't know where I'm going with this. I regret starting that. Yeah, what do, we, what do we do now? Yeah, I, <laughs> and I mean, I don't know if pulling out stitches from someone's face, if that's how you're supposed to do it, like very up, oh, yeah. up close and floating. Yeah, um, and we're flirting. Yeah. Um, the other thing, though, is that's really interesting is because, like, uh, plastic surgery, reconstructive surgery is an important part of this movie. His face was so perfect. He got blown <laughs> the fuck up. He had one stitch and an eye patch. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was wearing a colander over his eye. That and was, it was weird. because he got thrown out of the car. Yeah. But I do, what a weird, of all the doctors to have a relationship with, the person who literally built your face. Um, like, I kind of wonder, I was feeling like maybe the thing, this, this is another thing, a, like a spinoff movie that I'd be interested in is like, is this relationship good because she can just make his face, whatever kind of face she likes looking at. So like, she's kind of constructing her perfect boyfriend here, but then there's the scene where they're having sex and she keeps touching his face. Like she's just like, like, it feels like she's saying, good job. Good job. I'm a good doctor. Good job, mm-hmm. Renee. Uh, 
<laughs> Which is such a weird, interesting character. Wasn't well, I this mean, the premise of Nip Tuck? Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah, isn't that just such a sexy, great sex scene when they have a woman on top being completely still, not moving at all, right? And right. just like slowly sure. touching, touching the skin. Let's that's just marinate that's, together. That's, I just want to marinate. You touch my neck meat. That's my favorite thing. That's, that's another thing that makes it like, like I, I think that scene. Especially given like the time period and the kinds of racial themes that w- existed around that time and the kinds of discussions that were being had about miscegenation and interracial relationships and kind of this like that whole thing in cinema and on television. The fact that the sex scene between this upper class white woman and this this presented as lower or, or working class black man is so asexual. But also, yeah. he's supposed to be playing a white man. So you're like, what? Yep. Like, did you think about this in a way that I'm supposed to think about, or are you horrible at your job? Yeah, and it's definitely that second one. Um, the other, other really stupid, interesting thing is that I am so fucking sad for his dog. So he, like, at one point, he visits. He's trying to get his memory back. So he visits the small town he's actually from, and while he's there, a dog keeps coming up to him and being like fuck yeah you're home i've missed you and then he like throws a rock at it and leaves and never comes back and gets two new dogs so that dog who the credits say is named a mangy dog and is played by ott so great work acting by ott Good job, ott. um ott did a great job and ott but Ott was playing such a sad dog who was like you just got abandoned not to mention his girlfriend who all he also just had mentioned in the movie that he had a girlfriend in this old town and he's just disappeared and never even when he decides like i'm gonna live this life he's never like man it's gonna be weird to tell old girlfriend about new life and new girlfriend like he just straight disappears on her out of a town of four thousand. it's just uh really interesting um also stupider even stupider so ott did a good job the bird was played by a bird named aretha and and his new dogs were not credited and I figured out that's because neither of them had speaking roles. The mangy dog and the bird both made animal sounds. The new dogs were just in a picture. So they were just extras. Ten years you've been doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man. Uh, sometimes you just get one thing and you got to shoehorn it in. Speaking of which, we're going to wrap up our conversation about this movie. And we're going to take a quick dive into our, our third segment today, which is we're all going to peer into my gaping wiki hole. So... Yes. Hunter's fate. Another one of Hunter's favorite segments. It's time for a wiki halt where I take a deep dive on something that you guys were not that interested in in the first place. Specifically, there's a scene in this movie where Clay's surgeon slash lover um, tells him in a flirty way this fun fact that the inventor of rhinoplasty originally used a piece of skin from your underarm, but that you had to keep the arm attached to your face for the first couple weeks while the skin accepted the graft. So you had to hold your arm up over your to close enough to your face, and you had a skin connecting your nose and your arm for multiple weeks. And I thought that's not true. So let's take a deep look into the wiki hole. Let's get in the hole about rhinoplasty. So first up, the person she's referencing in the movie did not invent the procedure of rhinoplasty. Like we have, we have um, a papyrus from 1500 BC of the ancient Egyptians having a medical plan to do rhinoplasty, specifically um, to rebuild 
uh, a destroyed nose that was cut off because you were a criminal. So they they were like, there were people in ancient Egypt that would cut your nose off. And then there were also specialists in rebuilding your nose from stuff, which I didn't know we could do in 1550 BC. That's fucking crazy. See, right? but then also that's an interesting thing they didn't do on purpose again. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. For sure. Yeah, they yeah, watched yeah. the history of a criminalization story as invented by ancient Africans, but also they didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. They, they only focused on the Italian guy, but I will say she, the person she refers to Gasparo Tagliacozzi, um, is in fact considered the pioneer of plastic reconstructive surgery. And he did in fact, in his book, um, detail a procedure for doing a nose job with a flap of skin where you have to have your arm attached to your face for possibly months. Ooh. And uh, it included a diagram, which I'm going to put in the notes. Um, but uh, let me see if I can. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I don't know how to get it to you guys really fast, but it does exist. I'll put in the notes of the, the, of the, apparatus that would hold your arm to your face for two months while your nose and your uh, arm were connected by skin. And after that, it had a high failure rate where the skin on your nose would just fall off anyway. Wow. Um, doing that, uh, uh, doing a plastic surgery this way where it's still connected is called a pedicle flap. And the opposite of that, of course, is a free flap, which is where you take a piece of skin and disconnect it entirely and then regraft it. And the hard part about that is you need to figure out how to get the blood and other skin supplies right away. So you have to build that shit on your own with a graft. Whereas if you do it with your arm to your nose, it still gets its blood from the arm, um, but it doesn't uh, last uh, all the time. Um, this method of rhinoplasty, where you hold your arm to your nose, is called the Italian method. And uh, I, like I said, I'll have the diagram in the show notes. Um, uh, other fun facts about this. Uh, the operation was developed in Italy specifically because of the popularity of dueling with rapiers. Oh. So mm. this is how this happens. If you're going to get really good at doing reconstructive nose surgery, it's because someone is cutting off a lot of noses, whether it's because of some sort of criminal behavior, a religious ceremony, or just dueling with rapiers. Um, that's how the Italian method came up. Um, the, the, uh, Italian method was basically forgotten, abandoned in the, uh, 17th century, but then a famous Ger German surgeon re-upped it in the 1800s and it was still in use until the 20th century. So into the 20th century, we were still doing that thing with the nose, which is so crazy to me. Also two more fun facts about Dr. Tagli, three more fun facts about Dr. Tagliocasi. Number one, his name sounds like a kind of pasta, but that's just how Italians work. Number two. Um, and that's probably a little bit racist, even though I'm Italian. I don't know. Still feels weird, but I'm if comfortable with him on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Alex, for you, uh, it's like maybe one of the least racist things I've ever heard you say. So, yeah. yeah. You know, okay. I just, if you ever, if you like watch like the Italian national soccer team and you just hear them announce a lot of players, you're like, everyone, and you're like that. I'm sure I've eaten that. I'm sure that one's, that one's shaped like little circles. I've definitely, think, yeah. That the Mediterranean has had a proud and long culture that I am not privy to speak uh, to. It. Oh, man. Uh, uh, though I will never forgive them for what they did to Trieste. Oh, my God. Um, you get, I forgot. You can't mention Italy around Curtis. He's really upset still. Um, well, they destroyed former Yugoslavia, and my grandmother is pissed. <laughs> 
Um, two other fun facts about Tagliacazzi. Uh, one, he worked in a hospital that was called the Hospital of Death, um, which is a gnarly name, but it was called that because it was run by the Brotherhood of Death, also a gnarly name, um, yeah. which was a um, a nonprofit organization that visited prisons and comforted those condemned to death. So kind of like a nice, nice job, gnarly name. What You'd a, think uh, they'd have trouble a, like getting patients, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't want, I want to go get my nose and arm re, uh, reattached. I feel like the if the ambulance death. showed up and was, I was like, where are you all taking me? Like, hospital of death. I'm like, you guys need to, can we it, go further? Like, it, probably, I don't know. it probably sounds much better in Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It probably, it probably, probably sounds like pasta, I'm sure, according to Alex, known yeah. Italian racist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you guys ever had the pasta that's shaped like little tombstones? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if, if the Tagliacazzi was a, um, a pasta, it should be nose-shaped. Oh, um, anyway, uh, also a quote from his book is actually like still like frequently in like uh, framed in uh, plastic surgeon offices that says this is what he how he described the 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 job: we restore, rebuild, and make whole those parts which nature hath given which fortune hath taken away not so much that it may delight the eye but that it might buoy up the spirit and help the mind of the afflicted Aww. dr Okazi, famous nose pasta oh that's kind of yeah, nice that's i'm gonna people. get a fake <laughs> nose now i think i want a big hooked one <laughs> I, I don't know if i mean i think last i saw your face it looked fine yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not fine and I want to do so. I just I think it'd be cool to try out something else, something different. Well, I have some suggestions because I, I did notice that you and Curtis look identical. Oh, sure. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, we could not stop talking about it. Every time yeah. Hunter and I are in a room together, we're like, isn't it unfathomable? It's uncanny. Not I guess we even mentioned the fact that they are like half brothers, which is... Mm-hmm. I don't know if identical half-brothers. too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, can, can I just say one last little thing yes, now that yes. we're talking about that, about this movie? If you're, if you're going to fly a half-brother out to frame him or to, like, kill him and have him, you know, replace you as a yeah, dead body, use him as even a body though dental... Be a little bit nicer and cordial. You know, take him out for a meal... Like, don't, it's just, he's so all business Yeah. as he flies him out. And he says some pretty racist shit about wealth, which is, again, pretty, I don't know if that was purposeful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he spends yeah. about 45 minutes around his his uh, brother Vincent, and not one of them was pleasant. He couldn't even shower in peace. You gotta assume uh, the word privilege, like within the first five minutes, and you're yeah. like, "Yeah, 1993 was this, was that? What are you doing? What ha- what's happening yeah. here?" I left well, my house in Arizona, my house in California, to fly to Arizona. I took the gotta, bus to Arizona. You gotta uh, remember. <laughs> you gotta remember though uh, that uh, his mom. There were different moms, so like they had all this catching up to do. Uh, about privilege and stuff they had to talk about that and also we know clay's mom must have been way cooler because he turned out a lot nicer right i mean that's the only they're <laughs> half brothers he, but he turned out a lot nicer at the beginning of the movie at the end of the movie he embodies the soul and presence of vincent and abandons the care for his dog and the pride that helped him deny the watch he was offered so he ends up 
forsaking whatever the mother taught him and becoming the cold idea of whiteness. He was so aggressive and not wanting this money. I don't want your money. I don't want your gifts. I can't accept your watch, the watch. I don't want to be anything like you. And then in the end, he's like, actually, you know what? Being rich is fucking great. (laughs) (laughs) That is interesting. I forgot about that. What a fun way to come all the way around. All right. Um, Lastly, before we go, I just have a very brief dip into the mailbag. Uh, I just have uh, we had a comment on Facebook that I want to share with you guys. This is from Jonathan on Facebook, uh, who said, uh, this is a fun fact about the film Clifford, which Curtis just learned about. Reportedly, Nicolas Cage is a huge fan of the film Clifford. When he won the Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas, he took a flight home and encountered Martin Short a few seats away. According to Short, Cage told him that he broke his VCR re-watching Clifford so many times. <laughs> and I just like that so much. And I can see, like, the two men, like, Martin Short and, and, and Nicolas Cage just have, I can see the similar acting style of yelling. Like, they sure, both have yeah, that. Yeah. They both come from a yelling school of acting. It's oh, a very man. Nicolas Cage movie. And I like to imagine that when he says that he broke his VCR rewatching Clifford, he means that he liked it so much he just broke his VCR. Out of- <laughs> Not that he wore it out. I, I don't think could wear out a vcr just watching one movie that seems yeah. unlikely to me his uh his black pyramid in uh new orleans that he's gonna be buried in is just a copy <laughs> of clifford playing on loop oh man i hope his black pyramid has a dinosaur ride on the inside anyway thank you jonathan for that fun fact please continue to share remember when nicholas up- cage had to give back a t-rex call like two years oh, ago yeah. oh yeah that was crazy fun. i was actually yeah. a little bit sad about <laughs> <laughs> like, because losing your house, that's a thing that happens to everybody. Yeah. But losing your dinosaur skull is such a specific sadness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no I one can like, share that with you. <laughs> I don't think fossils should be in private collections, except I think maybe Nicolas Cage should be allowed to have one. He's one of the people Tim that I think deserves a skull. Deserves it more than Vince McMahon, the only other person I know of who has a T-Rex skull. He's the T-Rex skull too. I mean, yeah. the, the crazy thing about that is that we only have, we've only found like eight T-Rexes ever. And so the fact that two of the skulls were in private ho- homes is so strange. Well, can't you just make it yours? Like you have to choose to give it to a museum, right? If you find it, it's yours. I wonder, that- yeah, I guess if you find it on your own property, it could be yours, but it also probably depends on the country. I know that like with meteorites, you're not allowed to keep them. If you find a meteorite in the United States, it's like immediately property of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, because you know they don't want uh, they don't want the symbiote suit uh, <laughs> to take you. You know that's just right, a public right. safety thing. You know yeah, I don't get that, but that's really nice. I um, am against that law. I didn't know it was a law. I'm against it. How, yeah, there's, do you guys know how much above and below your land you own like do like if you buy a house do you own it's, it's forever yeah it you goes all the way to the earth's core i'm pretty yeah, sure you did, magma. Believe, and that's like not true anywhere else but i believe in the u.s it's def, it's to the earth's core hell yeah although you have to remember because of the way curve works as it gets closer to the core the trying it's a it's an upside down pyramid it'll get smaller and smaller yeah yeah um so you actually only own a very small fraction of the earth's core it's just something to aspire but I don't know for. How, how you actually own? Because you can't like say planes can't fly above it. You don't get to make laws. You you don't the get airspace, to regulate your yeah. own airspace. So yeah. I, but I believe you do own the. 
you own the air rights above yourself because that's a thing that people like. Well, let's like, be real. If a plane flew into your house, it wouldn't really be like a like. I mean, you wouldn't be like this is against the law. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Uh, very good I point. have my rights. <laughs> All right. Hey guys, why not just make the whole house out of the black box? You know? <laughs> All right, we are going to leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it for our show. Thank you so much for hanging out the whole time uh, and keeping us going for our 10th year. We will be back again next week with more of the same crap. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about Carol as a continuation of the one name films. Do you guys realize that? That's like a, a thing that we're doing. Yeah, Clifford, Clifford Carol. Clifford Hairspray Suture Carol. Well, not, I, I guess I meant, I meant I was thinking Clifford and Sabrina. Oh, right, uh, yes. So this will be our third single person's name. This is chosen by our guest, Laser, who's going to join us and has some thoughts on uh, uh, gender and the film canon. Um, and is going to share them. Again, I, did not, I, don't, I don't make people pick something that sounds snooty. Um, it was just like whatever you, you want to talk. It was, you said it, this year's theme was condescending film school, which just is a lot film. of syllables for snooty. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's at me. That's like the, the the game is Hunter and 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 Kurt, uh, Hunter and Anthony are are slightly condescending when they explain film to me. Alex, um, not only are you racist, but you're bad at explaining the premise of the show. <laughs> right. Good to know. Like if we had I'm glad we've covered that. Dude, if we had a simple to explain premise, the show would be so much more successful. Um, you can get in touch with us with any of your thoughts about this or other movies or any other premises that we should or should not use. Podcasts at read-weep.com. And of course, you can become a meat buddy by going to metreon.com, where your donations will continue the show long past its sell-by date. And I appreciate everyone who donates and keeps us going. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, Anthony. Uh, this is a pleasure. Hunter, I'm glad you're able to make this all work from Northwest Arkansas. Oh, yeah. Yep. Somehow I do it. It's it's a bunch of string and cans, and I make it work. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for joining us, Curtis. Uh, Always I, a treat to be asked to do a podcast. <laughs> this is... Um, uh, I, the thing that you mentioned about it that I like the most is like as an interesting conversation at a dinner party, which I do like for all movies that I've watched. If so there's something that I can be like, man, you know, it's crazy. Or like somebody can bring up like, man, that was fucking nuts. Yeah, this is a good movie for that. I I thought it was a, an enjoyable watch. And it's even though it was bad in a lot of ways, will be interesting to talk about at dinner parties if and when dinner parties are re-legalized. And if that happens, Curtis, you'll be our first guest. Oh, thanks. I'll. We'll talk about this movie. <laughs> It'll be great. Yeah. Our our wives can share their displeasure with having to sit through them. Did you make uh, Megan watch it? I did. Actually, she had an okay time, I think. Except, Well, except Megan um, really hates needles. And <laughs> needles were a strong theme of this movie. And a, a lot of the time, he'd be like, oh, you're in a hospital. Something gross is going to happen. She could turn away. But then every once in a while, he'll just be like, he would be like typing. And then just a giant syringe would come out of nowhere and stab into his hand. She did not care for that part, so she thought the rest of the movie was interesting, though. Oh, also, oh, I we're gonna, okay. I guess this is really quick before we go, um, which is that uh, I had this delightful misunderstanding from a text that you sent me, Curtis. So uh, that I passed on to Megan, and so she was actually super relieved that it was a misunderstanding. Which is this: it's that uh, you mentioned that this movie was neo noir, and I said I love neo noir. 
And you said, yeah, three hours of a guy exploring LA's irrigation system and un- uncovering an incest ring. Shoot that shit into my veins, which is a very funny thing to say when someone brings up neo-noir. But I thought that what you were saying was that like Chinatown, this movie was three hours long and featured a lot of incest. And so the fact that it was 97 minutes and had no incest at all <laughs> was such a huge relief to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> the bar is so low for that woman. <laughs> well, I had convinced her to watch it. I was like, it's going to be our whole night. And I don't know what an incest ring is, but apparently we're going to meet one. And it was not. You were just referring to Chinatown and I'm stupid. So No, you're not. Although I did like the, the premise of how... Incest used to be the worst thing anyone could think of, and now it's the hottest thing anyone can think of. <laughs> I don't. I look. We don't have time to really go into that part of it, but I don't think most people <laughs> like it. I think it is. I think it is a small percentage of people who o- are overrepresented in the search results. That's what I think. I, interesting. Yeah. Interesting theory, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're gonna yeah, go. We're, I gotta go. I, Goodbye. <laughs> Bye, later.